0: Welcome back to The Mountain Life. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. Since 2008, Dr. Eric Hyden and Dr. Karen Hyden have been in orthopedic practice as Hyden Orthopedics here in Park City. Now with at least seven other orthopedic specialists in the practice, they have expanded to a Heber City office. That's in addition to offices in Salt Lake City and Tooele. And they also welcome a new surgeon and one of my next guests Dr. Daniel Manjapani. He is a hip knee and shoulder That's specialist.
1: Right. Joint replacement, yeah.
0: Yes, Dr. Manjapani and Dr. Eric Hayden, welcome to the Mountain Life. It's great to have you.
1: Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, Lynn, thanks for having us.
0: Dr. Manjapani, let's start with you. How long have you been in the Park City area?
1: Yeah, uh, I've been around uh, about five or six years. Um, I moved here with my family from uh, Durham, North Carolina. I was lucky enough to be down there for about 15 years and more or less did all my training there. Not not as uh, famously as Dr. Hyden, but uh, I was involved in athletics at the Division one level. I played baseball at Duke University. I was a left handed pitcher, and so that's what helped uh, uh, get me started and paying my school bills and then stuck around for medical school and was lucky enough to do training out there um, and uh, had an interest in arthritis surgery uh, primarily joint replacement hip replacement knee replacement uh, shoulder replacement and revisions or redos of hip and knee replacements that go bad and so there was a nice opportunity uh, out here uh, I'm originally a native of Las Vegas Nevada and so um, this was a, a, a nice a nice location to be as I as I like to say it's close enough to Vegas but also far away enough at the same time and certainly with a with a family and kids now uh, being able to enjoy the uh uh, the outdoors here and certainly some of the uh, activities that uh, Park City has to offer has been incredible for my family so
0: it sounds like you have pretty young kids three young kids and
1: that's right uh eight years old (laughs) five years old and two years old so uh uh, and they're uh, probably as as loud as I am unfortunately so they keep (laughs) us uh nice and busy for sure (laughs)
0: as you said you were a left-handed baseball player go lefties i also am the question came into my mind is there any sort of advantage in the world of surgery to being a left-handed surgeon
1: I'm not sure that there is. In fact, in some ways, you might be a little at a disadvantage because a lot of the instruments are uh, right-handed. If you ever tried to use scissors left-handed, um, it's actually pretty difficult because the way that those blades are designed are actually for right-handed people. Um, what I've tried to do is really, as uh, probably Dr. Haydn knows, a career of orthopedic surgery. There's a lot of uh, squeezing and and some somewhat manual labor involved, and so uh, in some ways, I try to more or less uh, distribute the load really. And so you really, uh, at least uh, in my hands, I try to start to be somewhat proficient on on both sides, and so uh, over the course of a lifetime, just like a lot of things we do, whether it's skiing or any of our our activities, uh, trying to preserve our our joints or our our bodies or skeletons for a lifetime or a career, that's certainly something that I've done. So, unfortunately, unlike baseball, I think being left-handed doesn't offer you some of the (laughs) same advantages.
0: Adaptability may one of those, resilience That's maybe right. maybe That's another. Right. Um, well, Dr. Eric Hyden, welcome back Good to morning. The Mountain Life. You know, it's funny, you were one of our very first guests on the show when we kicked this off about 12 years ago. You've been around for a long while, and of course, you're resident of Park City, and also, you have iconic status in the world, the Olympic world, and we love our Olympians here in Park City. We have to just kick off with this record of yours that I still believe that you hold for winning the most Olympic medals in the 1980 Winter Olympics speed skating in Lake Placid.
2: It was a good week in Lake Placid. I may still hold the most Olympic medals in one Olympics. I, I, I'd have to look into that, but yeah, in Lake Placid, I won all the um, speed skating events for men, um, something that never was done before, I, I really don't think it's going to be done again just because of the the way that things have progressed with speed skating. Now a lot of the skaters are very specialized in short distance, middle distance, long distance, but um, had a very good career as a speed skater and then got into cycling for a number of years and then got into medicine after that.
0: Right. You call medicine your third career. And I'm wondering as an athlete, you know, how much did that sharpen
2: your interest in the joints of the body? No, I was very interested in getting into medicine, and it had to do with my father was an orthopedic surgeon, so I followed in his footsteps, and then I wanted to be not only part of medicine, but I wanted to also stay involved with sports, and being an orthopedic surgeon has allowed me to be part of the speed skating team. I was part of a a cycling team, worked with a basketball team for a number of years, and um, it's allowed me to really have a lot of fun, not only being a doctor, but also getting to know the athletes
0: right US speed skating based locally do you still have an affiliation with them
2: no the last time I was really the uh, lead physician for the speed skating team was at the Sochi Olympics in 2014 and since then I've turned it over to the University of Utah but occasionally get consulted on unique and, and special issues that speed skaters may have but I think I'm sort of considered sort of the emeritus guy who gets to come down to watch the events at Kearns which is where the Headquarters are and where the Olympic Oval is and I get to hand out medals every once in a while.
0: Well, that's great We all still remember what you did at the 1980 Olympics. It's a it's a great legacy And you know, you came to Park City in about 2006 along with your wife Karen who is a very well-known and beloved Hand surgeon and you decided after a while to build this practice It has expanded you have seven or eight orthopedic surgeons, and now expanding into the Heber
2: Valley. So how long has your Heber Valley practice been open? We've been open down there for about two months. My wife and I go down there uh, once a week, and then we also share space with Andy Talbot. And yeah, we started here in 2006, came here with, along with Max Testa, who's a local physician. And our goal was to put together a sports performance program like we had at uc davis which is where we were coming from worked at tosh for a number of years and then decided to go into private practice and my wife and i now have been here since 2006 so i think at some point i think we can call ourselves local i don't know if that's (laughs) (laughs) quite yet but um, then we had a uh, office first here in park city and then most recently over the last month we opened this new office down in heber which is as we all know living around here it is really a up-and-coming community, which is really growing quickly.
0: It certainly is. If you're just joining me on The Mountain Life, I'm having a conversation with Dr. Eric Hayden, along with a new doctor claiming space now in the practice, Dr. Daniel Manjapani. Daniel, I I noticed in your resume that one of the things that you worked on at Duke during your residency was some research into arthritis. Is arthritis inevitable?
1: Well, as I tell a lot of my patients, um, it's uh, because I will get asked uh, questions like, well, you know, my my parents had bad knees, or my dad had two knee replacements, and so is this something that's genetic? And um, while well, I think that's probably not as well described from a pure genetic uh, uh, hereditary standpoint, I tell a lot of folks, compared to 100 years ago, we live longer than we did 100 years ago. Uh, we stay more active at older ages uh, uh, than we did 100 years ago. And so uh, I'll just take the same line as I did North Carolina, where everyone's obsessed with NASCAR, uh, w- w- when you put that much mileage on your tires over the course of a lifetime, the tread sort of wears out. And so um, when that happens, um, you know, uh, uh, science and medicine, we have to be able to respond uh, to that. And uh, one of the more gratifying things of treating patients out here is uh, even compared to North Carolina in some ways is that you get people back to doing the recreational activities that they love, whereas you're maybe not. Making that big of a jump from a of what people are doing uh, before they had their hip or their knee replaced to after what they're doing uh, before or after they had their hip or knee replaced and so I have plenty of patients now. It's there's nothing more gratifying to say when they get back on the slopes or are back on their bicycle or something and saying that uh, I just don't think about my joint anymore and so that's even better than some of even some of the hyperbolic reactions that I'll get with like the hugs and everything. That's great, <laughs> but uh, but just having people say I, I really just don't think about it anymore. I know I've done my job at that point and so to answer. Your question is it inevitable? On a long enough timeline, it probably is. But um, that means you've you've lived a fulfilling and and productive life, at least uh, from a physical standpoint. And no better way to do it than out here, for sure.
0: That's right. Well, both of you are athletes, obviously, and a lot of people who move to Park City move here because they also are athletes, or at least enjoy their recreational time in the mountains. And it makes me wonder about going to this place of is there any way that we can avoid having issues with our joints for example you know if you look at a given population of people who ski a lot versus a demographic that doesn't do all that. That maybe doesn't overuse their joints. What do we find?
1: Yeah, no. I'll, I'll briefly answer. It. Dr. Hyden might um, have have a, even a better perspective with his experience in terms of sports injuries, and definitely does more ACL reconstructions uh, than I do. But I think I think it's regional in terms of um, uh, the the injury profiles uh, that you see. Uh, I still take trauma call and, and see a lot of, of fractures. So uh, just like you can blow out a knee or an ACL, which is a major ligament that's well known for anybody that's a sports fan, um, you can still get significant bony injuries like fractures that also require treatment. But I I don't think I'd ever tell someone to to not live a healthy lifestyle. I think one of the reasons why you go into orthopedics in the first place isn't to uh, tell people to not do things they like to do or sort of try to attenuate their lifestyle. I think what we do is about making sure that we're getting people back to their lifestyle and making big jumps and Big gains in quality of life, which is which is why I, I tend to like joint replacement a lot because uh, uh, that some of the uh, more high probability uh operations electively uh to get you back to doing the things you like doing and making those big jumps in quality of life like when i talk to my hip replacement patients um i tell i tell them you know um while no one wants to hear that you might have to have a joint replacement in your lifetime but if someone told you that you will but you get to choose what part of the body if you just google operation of the century there's a famous article written in 2007 in one of our more prestigious medical journals called the lancet that literally the title of the article is that operation of the century, total hip replacement. And so just in terms of um, how much advancements we've made in technology, in, in materials, um, uh, the way we design our implants, how we get to the hip joint, um, you, you make some pretty big gains for people um, who, are, who are in some bad spots. So from that standpoint, it's really gratifying.
0: Mm, the operation of the century. Well, Dr. Eric Hayden, I'd love to hear from you a little bit about about joints, and let's start with your own joints, personally. I mean, you've, maybe some would say, overused some of your joints in your life, and it gives you great perspective, empathy, and a real insight into what goes what goes bad with our hips, you know, knees, that could be a different story with some sort of crash on the skis, but. Yeah,
2: no, just, I just, you know, being an athlete myself, and then being one of the recreational athletes in the greater park city area. There are risks inherent with many of the sports that we participate in. You got skiing where knees are a big issue. You got snowboarding where upper extremities are usually the um, areas where you get injured. You got cycling. Um, and as Dan has say, said, a lot of it is just you know, wear and tear and we are a very active um, group um, and things start to wear out over time. Um, Personally, yeah, I kind of wore things out. Um, I'm 65. I had both my knees replaced two years ago, and I went from, I wouldn't say crippled, but my knees were very sore and uh, had both of them replaced, and I have gotten back to alpine skiing, cross country, uh, riding my bike, and not paying attention to my joints anymore, which is... It's a relief to be able to stay active within the Park City community because that's one of the reasons why I ended up moving out here with my family. So I am one of the recipients of modern technology and very grateful for it.
0: Mm, Absolutely. Well, in layman's terms, you know, you hear people talking about their joints, say a knee, and they're headed towards a knee replacement and they talk about, you know, I have no cartilage, I've got bone on bone, I've got bone spurs. These sorts of things can they be managed, prevented, delayed by things that we do? You know, we're always learning more and more about diets, and people's, You know, some people say, your joints hurt, give up gluten. You know, it's inflammatory. Lessen our inflammation in our joints. Maybe you can put off that knee replacement.
2: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. There are a lot of therapies out there, and some of them I would consider sort of alternative therapies, And the orthopedic academy put together a group of physicians and tried to come up with what they call a consensus statement to give all the physicians who take care of arthritis sort of an idea of what seems to be realistic. And they recommend doing three things before you get a knee replacement. One is sort of modify your activities to some degree if you can and just understand the reality of growing old. You can't do the same things that you did when you were younger. So you think about getting into partial or non-weight-bearing activities, and if you got a choice between a hike or a bike ride, maybe go for the bike ride. Then you have the anti-inflammatory medicines, the leaves, the Advil, Motrin, those over-the-counter, NSAIDs, Tylenol is another one. And then there are injections, and right now the Orthopedic Academy is pretty focused on recommending cortisone as really the, the one injection, but the bottom line the articular cartilage. Nobody has been able to really figure out how to replace that articular cartilage. You're kind of born with uh, one set of car tires and over time you kind of use those and nobody's been able to really figure out how to retread those car tires.
0: Well, Dan, you've talked about joint replacement, but there are a lot of things that you do before you get to that replacement that are non-operative. I know there are things like joint resurfacing and as as Dr. Hyden says you can't really regrow that cartilage, but what can you do?
1: Yeah, I think that's a, a fair question I think uh, um, Dr. Hyden certainly described all the conservative non-operative treatments Um very eloquently. But as, as I tell um, a lot of patients, as you work your way up towards more aggressive treatments, just like uh, the decision to get in a car and, and drive to my office is a, is a risk-benefit decision. Everything that we, every decision we make as it pertains to our joints and arthritis treatments are a risk-benefit decision and, and I guess sometimes cost. So obviously, um, if you're just modifying your activities, aka changing your life uh, to do things that don't, bother your, your your joints anymore, that's very low risk, but potentially might be low benefit if that's something you've probably inherently tried. So as you work your way up the ladder, again, things like injectables, I'd agree that cortisone is certainly a, a workhorse treatment that's very predictable. And once all that sort of runs out, I don't think I've ever told someone that they need a joint replacement because it, it's always an appropriate answer to try to put it off, to try to try another treatment. A joint replacement is certainly a much bigger surgery than a lot of the minimally invasive Surgeries that a lot of patients might have had leading up uh, to that retirement age, or or to that point where there needs or hips do start to wear out. And so uh, you certainly want to wait until uh, surgery is all that is, is left as a last resort, because I think one, you stand just by probability to have a better outcome with that. But two, I think it's easier to mentally uh, get over the fact that you've done everything in your power to avoid surgery. So when that time actually comes, if it does, um, that, that that you're comfortable with that and then you have a, a good outcome. And I think most importantly, a lot of the treatments now with our, our technologies and the way materials are made and the way that implants are processed and how accurate we are and putting them in the right spot. I think we've been able to dispel a lot of the rumors. I mean, you don't have to be a world-class athlete like Dr. Hyden to be able to get back on the ski slopes uh, with two knee replacements. You can be just your average patient who likes to stay active and, and you can still achieve those goals. And so I think that's important to understand as well.
0: Absolutely. Well, technology plays a growing role in all of our lives and Dan, since you've been in medical school a little more recently than has Dr. Eric Hyden here, you know, wondering about how you employ the use of technology in your surgical practice.
1: Of course. No, thanks for the question. Joint replacements, Unique because it's it's all based on imaging, and every time we do an operation, we put in some combination of of of, of metal, sort of resurfacing the joints. And so, um, in order to 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 do that and evaluate that preoperatively, uh, it usually involves a lot of imaging. So, so one thing that that we've been able to develop in the joint replacement community and even the orthopedic community is the ability to make three D reconstructions with imaging. And so, you know, everyone's talking now about. AI and chat GPT and how uh, robots work and how robotics has certain applications, well, that's already been applied in medicine and certainly in orthopedics and in probably nowhere more uh, innovatively than than in joint replacement because we, we deal so much in bones where for example if you do an ACL reconstruction or a rotator cuff repair that's a lot of soft tissue that's more MRI based whereas in joint replacement you're using a lot of of imaging and, and bones. so you have the advantage to make those 3d reconstructions and so um, using CT or other 3d imaging uh, techniques you can you can create, a 3D model of a patient's bony anatomy to the point where you can be so accurate in three dimensions with implants that that your accuracy level of hitting your target Uh, goes up significantly. And so we're always, as a joint replacement surgeon, you're always trying to achieve perfection and get to that 100% satisfaction rate that seemingly never exists, but you try to get as close as you can. And so I think that's where unique uh, options, particularly for knees, have developed. So I do a lot of partial uh, knee replacements. That's been a pretty popular operation, uh, particularly in patients in Park City, uh, because uh, oftentimes, by the time you start to have knee symptoms, it's not always the case that you have diffuse uh, arthritis throughout the knee, which we generally think about in three compartments. So literally, you can have uh, bone-on-bone arthritis in one-third of the knee, two-thirds of the knee, or the entire knee in all three compartments. And depending on what you do, what you're recreational activities are um, you have the ability to selectively treat that arthritis with a with a surgery and so in, in some cases those have been some of my happiest patients a, a patient that sticks out is an architect from Jackson Hole who comes here quite a bit he, he went to Vail he, he went all over the country uh, doing cartilage restoration that unfortunately didn't didn't work out as well and then ended up getting a partial knee replacement and was able to resume activities like CrossFit and so um, I'm not saying I recommend CrossFit for everybody that has a knee replacement but, but those are some of the activities that that we've been able to get patients back to with uh, some of the more cutting-edge technologies uh, that we're able to offer here at at Hyden Orthopedics.
0: What is the part, the one part, that's more likely to be
1: replaced first? Is there, can you generalize? Uh, Just with the knee? or With um, the knee. Yeah, yeah, I would say that the most common partial knee is, uh, just to quickly describe the compartments, Uh, we talk about the medial compartment, which I generally describe as the inside part of the knee, it's closer to midline, the lateral compartment, uh, which is the outside part of the knee. Those are both uh, articulations of the femur or the thigh bone and then the tibia or the shin bone. Um, so the femur and the tibia uh, make up the knee joint. And then the third compartment is the patellofemoral joint where the, the, knee, the undersurface of the kneecap sort of drops into a little groove in your femur bone called the, the trochlea. So you can actually resurface one of those compartments, two or all three. The most common is certainly the, the medial compartment. If you've ever, if anybody out there has, has noticed that their knees get a little progressively bow-legged or knock-kneed, um, that's usually a, an isolated uh, wear pattern. That's pretty common, probably a little more common to be bow-legged or in varus than it is to be uh, knock-kneed or in valgus Is the is the fancy medical term for it.
0: Oh, we like a little bit of those fancy medical terms here on The Mountain Life. And Eric, you know, going back to what Dr. Manjapani is saying about technology, in your experience over having practiced for many decades, how has the introduction of technology, and especially what we see now with, say, a knee replacement, how does it increase the success rate or the satisfaction rate, I guess, Uh,
2: of something like a knee replacement? Within orthopedics, orthopedics is very technology driven. It's amazing. I've been doing this now for 30 years. When I first got into orthopedics in the mid 80s, uh, early 90s, if somebody had a femur fracture, very often they were put in traction for months. Uh, We learned about the ability to fix these with intermedullary nails which allowed people to get up quickly out of bed almost the same day. Uh, When we look at knee replacements, um, when I first got started, it was uh, a new innovation. And patients were in the hospital for weeks, rehab for weeks in a rehab facility. Nowadays, people are able to go home almost the same day. And when you think about the technologies that are out there for putting these implants in very precisely, probably over the last, and Dan, you could correct me, but I'm gonna say within probably the last 10 years, there have been some big innovations in 3D reconstructions where there are patient-specific implants, there are patient-specific cutting blocks. Robotics now can help basically mill the bone or cut the bone appropriately. And as a consequence, you know, outcomes are being much, uh, becoming much more predictable, especially for young active people who want to get back, who have debilitating joints. Is
0: there a joint that you would be able to say is less perfect than another joint?
2: Oh, I would probably say with the joints that Dan and I take care of, I would probably say shoulders mm-hmm. in the fact that the articulation, the bones themselves, are uh, a little unstable and so you have to rely a lot on soft tissues to maintain good joint mobility and stability Uh, around here knees are probably what people deal with mostly because of the the ski activities Mm -hmm. and then hips uh, hips wear out but like dan was saying probably one of the most uh, successful joint replacements is hips people are getting up and about very quickly and returning quickly back to the activities that they enjoy Mm.
0: I'd have to agree with you on that shoulder thing. I always thought as I age, boy, it's going to be the hips, but it's not. It's the shoulders, and I haven't injured them. They're just...
1: That's why I, I respect the, the the sports guys like Dr. Hyden and some of our other partners um, as much as anyone because I think those are some of the, the hardest operations to coach people through like a rotator cuff repair because it's so fancy. It's so minimally invasive. How good of a surgeon you have to be to be able to tack on those soft tissues back to where they're supposed to be. However, some, those can be some of the most grueling recoveries just because you have to wait on those soft tissues to heal before you can actually use them. So my perspective is probably more of um, joint replacements. As I say jokingly, you know, um, we've been trying to to, to to fix all your soft tissues to save them for your whole life. Now I'm gonna put a Cadillac in your knee or, uh, or, or in your hip. And so that's ready to use immediately. And so probably in my practice, um, knee replacement probably has uh, is associated with a more challenging recovery because you physically have to get your motion as I tell all my patients were very aggressive about motion um, in the short term early after the, after surgery because scar tissue is something that is probably the only thing that has a time limit on it after that operation for example in hip replacement surgery your hip goes from being stiff to all of a sudden having more mobility to the point where some people tell patients to not do certain maneuvers for a couple months so it doesn't pop out a joint whereas if you don't use your knee it will get stiff and So um, uh, I would say, so for me, hips are easily, I think the easiest recovery. And some of our techniques now where we have muscle sparing surgery, um, where we're making very small incisions and being able to get those implants in, is certainly a more rapid recovery. Then in some ways, uh, yeah, knees and shoulders. So, so hips are hips are definitely my babies as it as it pertains to how aggressively we try to rehab patients. Right,
0: right. Well, yeah. As you're talking, it's making me wonder about the the program that you have for rehab or how you work with physical therapists and and who you work with at Haydn Orthopedics for that rehab. A huge, it's a huge part
2: of the surgery. You no, know, we've over the years have really appreciated the fact that soft tissues need to move otherwise they get stiff Um, when you think about acl reconstructions when they first kind of figured out how to do intra-articular reconstructions of the acl people were put in casts and immobilized for weeks sometimes months and then you had to work with a physical therapist for again months to get the range of motion back that has changed dramatically where after a soft tissue reconstruction very often patients are started passive or active assisted range of motion just so that they don't get stiff. So things have changed and we have a great community of physical therapists around here Um, and we really encourage the physical therapists to work closely with us. It's nice to have a good line of communication because I think for a good outcome it really is a a team effort. You have to do the surgery correctly, you have to have a good physical therapist to help you out and then you also have have to have a commitment from the, the patient to work hard because. It's not like you go to the garage with your car and you get a new transmission put in and you just drive out of the the garage and have no issues. After surgery, you really have to work hard and be committed as a patient, and it's nice to have a good team of people around you, and I think Hyden Orthopedics understands that.
0: And that was Dr. Eric Hyden along with Dr. Daniel Mangiapane of Hyden Orthopedics. We'll be back after these words. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Mountain Life. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. The mission of the Strength and Training Group Off the Mountain, along with its newly launched program, The 100 Year Athlete, is to create a community of athletes who will play on the mountains into their hundreds. Why not? Their approach to training ageless athletes rests on three principles. And the founder of Off the Mountain, Ben Van Trees, along with His partner, Rich Ellis, will join me now to tell us what those principles are and how you can still be skiing on the mountain at age 100 because you trained and strengthened correctly. Ben and Rich, welcome to The Mountain Life.
3: Thank you for having us.
0: To put it mildly or simply, Ben, you sort of intend to create another blue zone right here in Park City.
4: Yep, that's the goal. Keep people doing fun stuff on the mountains all the way through the last decade of life.
0: So especially from the standpoint of someone who's been really active throughout, you know, their whole life doing a lot of mountain sports and a lot of endurance sports and things like that. And then, you know, you get to this point where things are starting to hurt a little bit more. You're getting into your 50s. And there is an evolution here. Most people don't want to admit it. Wouldn't you say, Ben?
4: Yeah, I would I would say that's accurate. You hear in Park City from a lot of mountain athletes, I don't like the gym. I like to just be outside and enjoy the mountains. And I agree, I'm not a gym guy. There comes a point where just doing the sport, just doing the thing on the mountain doesn't hit everything that your body needs to keep it working well. And that's where the gym can be a really useful tool to keep you out on the mountains feeling good
0: yes so this is about longevity it's about training correctly which may not be how you've trained even if you did show up at a gym in the past what are the big mistakes that people have made been in the past training I know you know you've been involved in the gym world
4: for a long time yeah, there's a couple different spots that you commonly see people miss a little bit that could help them a lot. You've got your endurance crowd, and they typically enjoy just going outside and hitting the pavement, hitting the trail, cross-country skiing, and they're, they're focused primarily on endurance. And then if they go to the gym, you see two things most often. They're going to do a yoga, Pilates kind of thing because they know they need a stretch. And then when they go to strength train, they're doing really high volume with relatively light weights compared to what their muscles could do. And so you're missing a mobility piece, you're missing a speed and power piece, you're missing a hypertrophy piece, you're missing a strength piece. And all of those are critical for your body to remain athletic as you get older. And then you've got the other crowd who's. I need to train in the gym to support my outside stuff and they're going and doing really high intensity like hit work where you're in the gym for an hour doing a boot camp style thing and there you're getting really good muscular endurance you're getting some conditioning but you're breaking your body down as opposed to building your body up so it doesn't always help your body function better on the mountains it does help your baseline fitness and so breaking apart what do you need based off what your athletic profile is, what you're doing in the mountains, and then use the gym to complement that and to build that up.
0: It's so funny. I was kind of smiling because I was picturing people listening. Wow. If, you know, you really know people, especially here in this community, because I think, you know, in a mountain town, we are sort of unique in terms of what we do and how we train and what we expect from our bodies. Rich Ellis, let's bring you into the conversation. You are a partner in Off the Mountain and especially 100-Year Athlete. There's sort of a big job here in getting the message out, and that's where you come in. Can you just talk about the genesis of the 100-Year Athlete and and how you got involved?
3: Absolutely. So I'm a, a case study in everything you can do wrong in the gym and outdoors. So before I met Ben, I had a pretty... Rough two years, I managed to separate my shoulder, tear an Achilles, and herniate several discs. And I actually came into the gym to Minerstown to quit because I was just in so much pain and not getting anywhere. And that was right after Ben had showed up in town. And Ben, yes, you know, we we started talking. He said, "Hey, don't quit. Give me twelve weeks, and let's see if we can get you feeling better." And started to train in a completely different way. So I was more on that spectrum of interval, high intensity training all the time. And that meant when I would get on the bike or get on the board, I would get hurt a lot, I would crash a lot, I was too tired to really do it properly. So then helped me get realistic. You know, I was near the end of my 20s. And it was time to save some energy for the outdoors, train more intelligently in the gym. And we ba- he basically started putting me through what is now the 100-Year Athlete. And having seen how my life has changed, how my body's changed, how much I more I can enjoy what I do outdoors, I thought it would be really powerful to get involved with this and help bring it to a bigger audience.
0: Why the 100-Year Athlete? Where did this name
3: come from? Yeah, so the idea is if you wanted to ski bike, run, play pickleball, climb into your hundreds, what would you have to do now to make that possible? The whole idea is that whether you are 35 or 65, you can start training in a way that will dramatically increase your odds of being able to do those things that you love into your golden years.
0: Makes all kinds of sense. If you're just joining us on The Mountain Life, I'm having a conversation with Rich Ellis and Ben Van Treese. They are from off the mountain and a hundred year athlete. And now to complicate things, Ben, let's talk a little bit about Minerstown because most know of that as a CrossFit gym, and this is something separate. So
4: <laughs> explain it all, please. So I rolled into Park City in 2018, and Minerstown at that time was a CrossFit gym. I was subcontracting space, running my company off the mountain through that. And when the pandemic hit, I ended up taking over ownership of Minerstown, Jeff Roska, and he's also another Park City local. He owns part of the gym. I own the other part. We run functional fitness classes through... Miners town and that's for the original community that's um, began in that gym that's a crossfit style stuff and then the other part probably the majority of what we do is around the 100 year athlete concept where we're working with kind of the park city athlete we also work with some of the high school teams we work with a fair number of athletes from pcss and we have a few olympic and x games athletes that we're training as well and it all works together Great. We've had people that start on the functional fitness side and then they're, they realize, oh, 100-year athlete makes more sense for me for what I'm doing right now. We've had people start in 100-year athlete and slide over to functional fitness for a couple days a week because they're not able to get outside, so they want to do their hard work in the gym where they're doing more of that high-intensity conditioning kind of stuff. But Minerstown is the physical location, and then off the mountain is what powers the 100-year athlete
0: the 100-year athlete program is or isn't functional training like CrossFit?
4: Yeah, it's not like CrossFit at all. It comes from more of a, actually, it comes from a strength and conditioning background and focus. And the reason for that is, if I introduced you to two 80-year-olds, one is the most athletic 80-year-old you've ever met, and one is just your typical Midwestern 80-year-old who's, done Midwestern things their whole life. I say that with love because I'm a Midwesterner. That's where I grew up. And I asked you, who is gonna live on their own and have a higher quality of life for longer? A hundred out of a hundred people would say it's the, the athletic 80 year old. As we get older, we stop training like athletes. And that's not any fault of anyone, but that education hasn't been forefront. In order to last for a long time, longevity training is athletic training. It's just done in an intelligent way. You don't train a 50 year old like you do an NFL player. But the base concepts of what that NFL player needs and what the 50 year old, the 60 year old needs, it's the same exact thing. The movements, the exercises to get you there just need to be appropriate for the person that you're working with.
0: So Rich, let's let's talk to you a little bit since since you're the person who's using the words to try to get people in, how are you speaking to people? They don't want to hear that they're aging. They want to still do it like they were in their 20s. But how can we softly um, suggest that they are, yes, actually aging?
3: So I think one of the misconceptions about training for longevity is that it's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be too easy. You're going to be doing you know things that you know that aren't fun that don't challenge you, and I think the hundred-year athlete is very much not that. You know when you come and train, although you may be doing different variations of movement, So if in your if in your twenties and thirties you were doing, you know I used to do deadlifts with um, a regular old bar, and in recent years I realized okay, I don't have a great my back has taken a lot of uh, punishment over the years. I can't use that. So I'm going to use variations to get the same training effect without hurting myself. So I'll use a trap bar deadlift. Or uh, another example, I figured out that pressing heavy things overhead does not work for me. There's a really good chance if I do that, I'm going to throw out my back. So it's not that the message to people who come in the gym is not you're old, you have to start scaling things back. That's not at all. It's you are an athlete until the end, train in a way that is safe for you, but that also challenges you and builds strength, builds muscle mass, that builds mobility, that builds speed and power. These things that we used to think are only applicable to professional athletes that are in fact really important for us normal people too. I am not an exceptional athlete. You see me bike uphill. It is not that impressive, but I feel so much better doing those things now.
0: Yeah. Well, The word longevity just has a much more positive connotation, I think. And if you asked anyone, would you rather have longevity or performance? And after they said, well, I'd rather have both, they'd probably say, it's longevity I'm looking for. And yet, Ben, when they get into a situation where they have always gone for performance, They're going to do that again, right? Right. And so if you've trained them for longevity, what can they expect for performance?
4: Yeah, longevity training is performance training. It's just thoughtful. When we become adults, most people stop thinking in seasons. I'm going to use fighters as an example. I watch a lot of UFC, a UFC fighter, a boxer, that type of person is going to do an eight week fight camp, maybe 12 weeks at the longest. And then the rest of their season, they're just training to make their bodies work better. They're training skills, but they're not training redlined all the time. As adult athletes, we don't typically have the same type of season where we go from mountain biking into snow skiing, into trail running, into mountain biking once the trails drive back off or some similar flow, put your sport in there. And so we're always in season for gym work. You have to build in, okay, here's my maintenance phase. Here's my preseason phase. Here's my season phase. Here's my, get my body back together. Cause I just beat myself up on last season. The snow was amazing. We were all skiing 60, 70, 80 days out of the year skiing hard. So you need to back off for four to six weeks to make the body work again. So, you're always training for longevity. And then when you have an event, we look back eight weeks or 12 weeks and focus on performance for that section of your year, hit the event, and then we bring you back down, focus on making the body work really well, and then get you back up into a baseline phase where we're training for longevity. The worst thing for performance is an injury, because then you have four weeks off, eight weeks off, 12 weeks off, heaven forbid you blow your ACL, now it's nine months before you can get back out there the way you really want to. So longevity training is performance training.
0: Mm, Okay. You also say save your sweat for the mountains. And I love to hear this because you're trying to minimize and increase the effectiveness and efficiency of what you do in the gym so that that sweating can take place when you're adventuring out, you know, you're spending most of the time out in the mountains, which is what, It seems like most people would want, unless they're gym rats.
4: Correct. The biggest thing that changes as we become aging athletes, 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever that number is, is not your ability to perform, it's your ability to recover. So you need to adjust your workouts to train for recovery when appropriate, train for building your body up when appropriate, and then when you go outside, that's where you're doing your hard efforts. I'm gonna use, me personally, I'm gonna use my really hard days when I'm climbing outside, I'm a rock climber. My hardest training sessions are when I'm outside climbing. Everything else is make sure I'm fresh, ready, feeling good and a little bit stronger when I get to my hard effort outside. So beating yourself up in the gym as an aging athlete is taking away from your ability to perform well when you're outside on the mountain. That's a really big piece of education people miss most of us want to train really hard, the harder we train, the better we get. And that's not true. The smarter we train, the better we get. Mm-hmm. You know, I would add to that Ben has interviewed some incredible
3: local athletes on the 100 year athlete podcast I and mean, Peekaboo Street, Jay Burke, uh, Charlie Sturgis, it's something that Charlie said, really stuck with me. Uh, he talked about how during during bike season, he'll do what he calls Charlie's no sweat workouts and the idea is that he's still maintaining his strength he's still actually making gains but like Ben said he's saving all that sweat for the trails and that that makes a lot of sense to me not every workout has to be uh leave you in you know on the ground in a pile of sweat
0: absolutely well those three are certainly local icons and as you were talking i also was thinking of Another um, aging athlete who's in his, oh, early to mid 80s now, he's a local icon, uh, Dave Hanscom. We've interviewed him a couple of times. And, you know, the words that stick with me and that I say to myself that I've heard come out of Dave's mouth is it's changing your expectations a bit, but consistency, and recovery and knowing when to moderate. And it's interesting how much we can learn from really successful aging athletes. Um, okay. So let's talk a little bit about the, um, the program itself. You have five days a week that you can come into classes, but then there's also this, um, virtual or remote coaching
4: program. Yeah we have it five days a week the way it's set up is you can come in all five days per week not many people do most people are in here either three times or two times and we have a push day pull day plyometric day push day pull day we encourage people to find if you're coming twice a week a push day and a pull day most of the time and hit a plyometric focus day one or two days a month, if you can, because we have the plyometrics built into the other days as well. If you're coming in three days, you're gonna hit a push day, a pull day, and a plyometric day. The way the program's built is it's seasonally based around what's going on on our mountains in Park City. So our in season blocks are summer and winter when people are doing snow stuff, and then people are doing trail stuff, golf, and court stuff. And then during mud seasons, that's where we ramp up the gym activity, have a little more volume, have a little more intensity, because that's where we can get more strength gains, more hypertrophy gains, which are very, very important for staying power in the mountains. And doing that when there's less time outside, less importance on what you're doing. And we have a really strong team of in-person and online coaches. And for our virtual delivery we have an app it's called off the mountain you can download it on the app store or the play store and you are able to get your program set up it's really well accessible through videos messaging and feedback and then we have office hours twice a week where you can jump in meet with the coach ask questions get adjustments made to your program and so it's like having a coach in your pocket and we have people all over the country working with that program right now
0: So this program is going all over the country, so we should feel really lucky that we have you here in Park City.
4: Yes, the Park (laughs) City is the lab. That's where we're learning everything hands on with people, getting feedback on a daily basis. And it allows us to continuously improve the program. And then everyone else can that's not here can join in that Internet world.
0: So if I walk through your door, you are going to do an evaluation of me. You're going to look at my muscle mass, my, oh, my joint, shall we say, immobility issues. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And you're going to do some pretty in-depth evaluation
4: or? Correct. You come in, it's called a functional range assessment. And we're gonna do a whole health history, performance history, training history, injury history, really get to know you, get to know how you tick a little bit. And then we're doing a table test where we'll measure passive range of motion versus active range of motion of all the joints in your body. And what that tells us is from a human perspective, what's working well, what could work better? And then from a sport perspective, If you're a snow skier, what range of motion is required from your joints to effectively complete your sport? And then we can custom build out mobility training that's going to make those things that could work better work the way they need to in order to to support your event. And we can get really granular. We can figure out if the joint or the tissue is not working the way it should. Is it because of the nervous system? Is it because of the joint capsule? Is it because of the connective tissue? Is it type one muscular tissue, type two muscular tissue? People don't need to understand that, but we can be very targeted in our approach to your training to make sure if you have a nervous system thing and we're working on a muscular thing, we're not going to drive the needle. We get a lot of people that are coming in from medical. So they've worked with chiropractors, PTs, orthos, everything, and nothing has worked. And it's because the problem was identified, but the cause of the problem wasn't correctly identified. So the intervention was working on muscular stuff instead of nervous system stuff or some variation of that. So Mm -hmm. we can be very targeted in our approach to get you feeling good, playing hard.
0: So I'm wondering how many people come in for this evaluation and they're sort of in denial about what's going on in their bodies and um and they're and therefore they're not really even aware of their mobility issues. Like I sort of pointed to my shoulders. And I think if you were to do a test on my shoulders and their mobility, I I would find out that I've been sort of compensating for the lack of mobility for a while and doing other things. Do you find that a lot?
3: I can speak to that personally. I mean, when I came in and Ben did the functional range assessment with me, he told me that I had the spine of a 70 year old, which was not a compliment. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I had no mobility in my lower spine. So of course, when I was biking or boarding, it was putting a ton of pressure on those discs that started to bulge and herniate. So I had to get mobility back into my spine to be able to absorb those impacts and do things more safely.
0: Mm-hmm. That's good. Well, it stands to reason that your lack of mobility in your spine probably had to do with fracturing those vertebrae. Was that right? Or is Oh, it- no.
3: I had, I mean, it's it, I, I go to the doctor, I have to bring this double sided sheet with all my injuries over the years because I can't fit them in that little box they give you. So I, I'd had back surgery in 2009, and then all kinds of other things that, um, had basically had my, my body was guarding my back all the time, and that was making all these problems worse. And it wasn't until I started trusting my ability to, to move the spine and to take it through its full range of motion that I was able to overcome
4: these, these, these chronic injuries.
0: Just briefly tell us about the
4: podcast as well. Yeah, the podcast, it's been a lot of fun. What I'm trying to do is just find people in town that are 60 plus, even have some 40 year olds on there and just share their story. And I'm really impressed by the people in their 60s, 70s, 80s that are still doing awesome stuff and still getting after it because they didn't have the education that we have had or the opportunity. Like we're in the golden era of longevity. We've got a lot of titans in different fields that are putting out a lot of really good information we can use. So talking to Sherry Walsh, she can't hike anymore because her knees hurt so bad and her back hurts so bad. So she mountain bikes six days a week. And when I asked her about the mountain biking, are you worried about crashing and breaking something? Her response was, huh, never even thought about it
0: and that was Ben Van Trees along with Rich Ellis of Off The Mountain and a 100-year athlete you can find them at otmstrength.com they're also on Instagram thanks for tuning in to the Mountain Life here on KPCW Park City